You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. Father, as you have blessed us this morning by exhortation and in song and in prayer and in the reading of your word, would you now bless us as we unfold it? Your word is your spirit's sword, and by it you bring life and conviction of sin and comfort and sorrow. Help us now to see the way of life that you have established for us in your son, who is our savior and king, in whose name we pray, amen. So I'd invite you to keep your Bibles open this morning to Psalm 1 and 2, and as Pastor Jonathan taught us last week, uh, the Psalms are designed, Psalms 1 and 2 are designed as the entryway into the whole book of the Psalms. Through them, we behold the King and we behold life in his way. And glancing over Psalm 1, we're reminded that the way of the righteous is defined by relationship with Yahweh. The blessed man is the man whose life is saturated with the knowledge of the one true God. A relationship of trust and love that calms his fears, that seasons his decisions, that comforts his sorrows, that shapes his affection, that guards his life. And this is contrasted, isn't it? by the world in which the man of Psalm 1 finds himself. He lives in a world shot through with brokenness. Crooked counselors, sinners who want to recruit him into their wicked cause, self-righteous scoffers who look down their noses at God and at his people. But that world, in fact, lives too in him. The righteous person desperately needs God to both speak and to act. He needs to be planted in the stream of God's word to give him life and to give him hope and to give him a future. And Psalm 1 assures us that the one who trusts in the Lord can have unswerving confidence about that future. No matter what comes, in the end, those who are connected by faith to this living word will stand in the congregation of the righteous. Their lives will not be meaningless. Psalm 1 shows us. It shows the righteous the way of blessing. And Psalm 2 complements that message by ultimately showing us the one through whom that blessing comes. In Psalm 2, we find a king whose authority is universal and eternal. His rule secures all blessing. Psalm 2 is a gospel psalm. It announces good news to the world, comfort, amnesty, peace, blessing. All are to be found in Israel's king the begotten of God, the Christ, the anointed one. In fact, 
the firm period on the end of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is the refrain, blessed are all who take refuge in him. But Psalm 2 also sounds a dire warning for those who try to find refuge elsewhere. It will not be found. Self-rule will result in derision, in wrath, in fury, in destruction. This king is not to be domesticated. He's not to be belittled. He's not to be ignored. He's not to be rejected. There is no refuge, no refuge outside of him. And so this morning, let's hear both the good news and the warning that we find in Psalm 2 through the four voices that we hear in Psalm 2. So we're going to look at the four voices in Psalm 2. In verses 1 through 4, we hear what the masses say. In verses 5 through 6, we hear what Yahweh says. In verses 7 through 9, we hear what Yahweh's Messiah says. And finally, in verses 10 through 12, we hear what the psalmist says. So let's first look at what the masses say. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Weekends like this one, Bring us full face to the reality of human opposition to divine rule. According to Paul in Romans 1, 24 through, 120, through verse 27, elevating and pursuing our own definition of sexual fulfillment is perhaps the clearest example of humanity's disordered desire and rebellion. It is, in fact, pride and pride of the deadliest kind. And in the world that we inhabit, the broken world we inhabit, this disorder and rebellion is everywhere to be seen. The suppression of truth, the rejection of justice, the abandonment of good order, the universal pattern in humanity of seducing and oppressing and exploiting others for selfish gain. All of this is simply reflective of the very human desire to pursue what seems to be freedom and happiness, to throw off what seems to be undue restraint, to claim both the right and the ability to determine what is good, and to attempt to forge our own destiny on our own terms. Sooner or later, however, it will be seen for the trap that it is. This is not the path of life. It leads only one way, to disappointment, to dissatisfaction, and to destruction. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, reflects this broken desire for self-rule. The nations raise their fist against Yahweh's exclusive claims. The peoples murmur their disapproval of his restrictions. Kings and congresses deliberate together, passing laws to thwart God's will. Together, they say, let us burst their bonds apart. 
let us cast off their cords from us. They parrot the original lie of the serpent in the garden. The divine conditions of blessing they see as hostile restrictions, holding back mankind from true freedom. That's what the serpent says in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. He says, we don't believe that God is wise and good. We don't like his conditions. We won't be ruled by him. We want the freedom to rule ourselves. The psalmist would have us see the lunacy of this resistance even in the first word of Psalm 2. Why? Why do the nations rage? Why do they murmur mutinous thoughts? Why do human authorities align themselves against God and against his people? Why do they say, we'll show God, we'll cast off his rule? Do they not know who he is? Do they not know what they are attempting to do? Do they not know that their opposition won't accomplish what they hope? The full fury of the nations, all the collected powers of all the rulers in all the earth is nothing before the living God. He is not intimidated. What is his response? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The kings of the earth, verse 2, may threaten. But verse 4, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. From the perspective of his heavenly throne, diabolical dictators with nuclear weapons, cultural warriors with antagonistic agendas, homicidal terrorists with bombs strapped to their bodies, they all appear as they are. Very, very, very tiny. The I am shakes his head in disdain. His rule, no matter what power his detractors may claim, will not be overthrown. And so we've heard what the masses say. What does Yahweh say? The Lord, the one who raises up kings and brings princes to nothing, he will have his say. Listen to his voice in verses 5 through 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The rulers of the earth think that throwing off God's restraints in favor of their own rule will bring true freedom. They think that they have good news, but it is a false gospel. Trading the conditions of God's rule for the conditions of human rule is an empty hope. And it is deadly rebellion. Verse 5 shows us that Yahweh feels anger. He feels anger over the rebellion of these threatening masses. But his anger is not provoked merely by human opposition to his just authority. His anger is grounded in himself, in his character in what is both right and good. And human rule is not good news. In the days before David, 
the people of Israel pled with the prophet Samuel to anoint for them a king like all the other nations had. They were not content with God as king. But they came to realize the rebellion of their request. Every human king like them was broken by sin. Thus, every king's rule was at best a dim reflection of God's perfectly just rule. And so, in 1 Samuel 12, verse 19, they cry out to Samuel saying, Pray for your servants to the Lord our God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. But God, through Samuel, promised that he would again establish his rule as king. And that he would do it despite their rebellion through a descendant of David. The only hope for humanity is the return of God as king. The establishment of God's kingdom. And that's where the good news of Psalm 2 comes in. Look at Yahweh's response to the brokenness of human rule. He expresses his response in an announcement. Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As for me is kind of a weird English way of trying to express the intensity in Hebrew of the I. Yahweh says, I myself. No other powers. I myself have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have put in place the true king who will rule with justice and holiness. The problem presented by wickedness in the world is not a better system of government. It's not a change in earthly leadership. The only solution, the only solution to the problem of the world is the coming of the kingdom of God. And as Pastor Jonathan reminded us last week, God set up a kingdom in Israel with David as its king. David, from the line of Judah, a descendant of Abraham, was the conduit of blessing promised through Abraham, both to God's people and to the nations. And in 2 Samuel 7, as Jonathan mentioned last week, God promised that David's offspring would continue to rule on David's throne forever. But the king that Yahweh announces in Psalm 2 looks beyond David. How do we know? Here are three reasons. First, what verses 8 and 9 describe in terms of the extent of his rule was not even true under the rule of King Solomon, David's son. The nations were not ultimately under Davidic rule, and most certainly the ends of the earth were not his possession. And not long after Solomon's rule, you remember that things fell apart in a bad way. And the kingdom was divided, and terrible kings ruled. Second, notice that David indicates elsewhere in the Psalms that he understands that a greater king will come, an everlasting king to whom all nations will bow in obedience. That king will come from his lineage. So in Psalm 110, he says this puzzling thing in verses 1 through 2. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make 
your enemies, my footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. You rule in the midst of your enemies. What a strange thing for David to say. How, how does this refer to David? Well, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus picks up this same text. And he says, if David calls the Christ Lord, how then is he his son? The implied answer is that David is just a type of the greater David, the greater David to come. And Jesus declares himself as that greater David. Third, and most importantly, the disciples tell us that Psalm 2 was pointing to Jesus as the greater David, the anointed one. Turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 24. And let me give a little background. In Acts 3, after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, Peter and John are preaching on the porch at Solomon's temple. And they're showing how the scriptures spoke of Jesus as the anointed one, the Messiah of God, as Israel's true king, as his only true savior. And the crowds were astonished, but the religious authorities were furious. They arrested John and Peter, which only gave John and Peter even a greater opportunity to preach Christ the next day to all the assembled rulers. Warning Peter and John, not to speak again in the name of Jesus, the religious leaders released them. And then Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 30, that Peter and John gathered with their friends and they lifted up their voices together to God and said, verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy name, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The disciples, having been taught by the resurrected Jesus that the law and the prophets and the writings referred to him, say that David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is speaking in Psalm 2, not of himself, but of the one to come, namely the greater David to come, Jesus, the Messiah. So even though Psalm 2 is fitting for David, God intended that this announcement to point beyond David to fulfillment in David's greater son, in the Messiah, in Jesus, the Son of God. So we've heard what the masses say. We've heard what Yahweh says. Now let's listen to a third voice another voice, a different voice, the voice of Yahweh's Messiah. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The anointed one emphasizes that Yahweh has called him my son. This, too, is what 2 Samuel told us to expect of the one who is to sit on David's throne. This king would be adopted as God's own son. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 says, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. But the son depicted in Psalm 2, 7, and 8, unlike David, has been given a heritage of all the nations and a rule that extends to the ends of the earth. This is universal authority. And notice the other, maybe stranger element to this degree, this decree. He says that the decree says, you are my son. Today, I've begotten you. When this king comes to his throne, he will not simply be adopted as God's son. He will be God's son by nature and by right. In other words, the decree the anointed one speaks of here cannot ultimately pertain to David. David was a king, but he was still only a man. He went the way of all men and was buried with his fathers. As such, his rule came to an end, as did his sons and his sons and his sons after that. But this son, the son spoken of in Psalm 2, this greater David is more than man. This son is the begotten of God, and his rule will not only be universal, it will be eternal. And only one man fits that bill a man who is both God and man, a man who can say as Jesus does in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. A man over whose baptism and at whose transfiguration God the Father declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. A man whom even death cannot defeat. Psalm 2's promise of this son, the begotten of God, is the good news we so desperately need. And this is the news that Paul announced to the rulers in the synagogue in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, verse 32. Listen to this. Paul says, we bring you good news. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We need a king who is more than a man. We need a king who isn't subject to sin 
or to vain ambition. We need a king who is proven to be perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly powerful, perfectly righteous, perfectly wise. And this is what God declared of Jesus, Paul says, in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, by raising him from the dead. This son was descended from David, he says, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, this decree that the Anointed One tells tells us of in Psalm 2 is the best news in all the world. In Jesus, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. How foolish now do the words of the masses sound in our ears? Because we've not only heard their words, we've heard the better news of Yahweh's announcement, and we have seen the decree of which the anointed one speaks, that it is the banner flying over Jesus' power over death and over the grave. And so now, finally, we return to what the psalmist says. We've heard the masses. We've heard Yahweh's announcement. We've heard his Messiah's decree. And now we hear from the psalmist in verses 10 through 12. You may not know why you're here this morning. But I know without a shadow of a doubt that you're not here by accident. The words of Psalm 2, these words are for you. And they're either to be a comfort or a warning. Now, therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The main point of Psalm 2 is that there is refuge in no one else. No one else, including yourself can deal with your sin problem. No one else can assuage the wrath of God for our rebellion against him. And so if you're here this morning and you're fed up with God and you're fed up with the conditions of his rule, hear this urgent warning. Be instructed and become wise. The serpent would like for you to believe that true life exists outside of God's kind designs, but it's a lie. Instead of being a servant to God, Satan would have you become a slave to yourself. And that is a miserable exchange. Its end is dissatisfaction and disappointment and destruction. Instead, you must heed the commands of verses 10 and 11. Be wise. Be warned. 
serve the Lord. The Messiah's enthronement and his universal rule is good news if you will have it. Because he's come to deliver you once and for all from your sin. And there's nothing that you need to do except to find refuge in him. And what is more, verse 12 offers you this warning with dire urgency. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Friends, Psalm 2 teaches us that opposition to God is not sane. His reality cannot be denied. His rule cannot be thwarted. He may endure taunting and mocking and resistance for a time. But he doesn't tolerate it forever. You don't know what may come later today. What may become of you later today. So heed this warning now. Submit to his lordship. He offers you peace and reconciliation and the ceasing of your strife with with him. And that's why the psalmist can end verse 12. The main point of this psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus, the anointed king, the son of God, calls out to you at this very moment, saying, all things have been handed to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord Jesus stands and offers you in this moment. All the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. Heed this urgent call to come to the Lord Jesus. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if you're here this morning and you feel disheartened by the wicked powers of this world, the psalm, this psalm has a word of comfort for you. Despite appearances to the contrary, those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and his people will undoubtedly fail. They are the, the shaft of Psalm 1 that the wind blows away. They cannot threaten the kingship of the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, they only accomplish the opposite of what they intend. Martin Luther captures this, I think, in a really powerful way. In Psalm 2, the prophet wishes to show us that Christ is a king ordained by God the Father and that many great Gentiles and Jews, kings and rulers, have not been able to hinder his kingship with their counsels or their oppositions or their strivings or their rages. They spent everything so fruitlessly that they made a mockery of themselves. The more they resisted, the more they promoted the kingdom of Christ. And not only is it impossible for them to do harm, but by their counsel, 
But by God's counsel, their torment and their vain plots must serve most of all to promote what they seek to prevent. And Luther concludes by saying, Thus, the friends of a Christian are really not as useful to him as his enemies. If you're here this morning and you feel in need of a comforter, know that Jesus reigns supreme. Friends, this message of Jesus' kingship is the best news in all the world. Happy are those for whom the Lord is their trust. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. How then can we not share this message with all who might hear? And so let us then, with them, look to the great king of Psalm 2. For as Psalm 2 tells us, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we worship you as the anointed one, as the king of kings, as the Lord of lords. You are worthy of all worship because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And when you return, they shall reign forever. You are worthy to receive all power and honor and glory and might and honor and wisdom and blessing. Remind us of the refuge that we can find in you. Help us look to you to receive the blessing that is ours because of our King, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.